This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Glad you're with me. Hey, maybe I should issue a cliche warning before I get started because I'm about to use the word unprecedented. It's on the short list for most overused words during the pandemic, but that doesn't mean it isn't accurate. I mean, the same holds true, though, of the financial world we're living in. I mean, we've got unprecedented government spending, which has produced unprecedented amounts of debt, financed by unprecedented degree of central bank intervention, along with unprecedented increase in many asset classes, whether we're talking real estate or baseball cards. You've got unprecedented prices for housing, commodities in Europe, the UK and China. You've got that for energy prices. The bottom line is that that's what we called on Money Talks. And my goal is to help you get through this. And today's interview with one of the most respected analysts in the English-speaking world, Greg Weldon, is going to make a difference. Now, I'm going to start by asking him what he thinks the biggest issue we all face personally in our finances. And speaking of protection, I'm going to ask Border Gold's Rob Levy to give us the step-by-step guide and actually buying gold and silver. How much money do you need? I want the physical stuff this time. Rob's going to answer those questions. Ozzy's going to tell us what to make of the most recent real estate numbers. And Victor is going to tell us what's going on in the markets. And I do hope you stay for me for uh, the quote of the week and the goofy. But first, much of the news headlines this week focused on COP26 in Glasgow, a gathering of world leaders, well, actually with the notable exception of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, but There were A-list celebrities and connected business people there. 39,509 people registered for the Glasgow conference, including 3,800 media and 14,000 observers. Come on, to be honest, I'm not sure what the vast majority are doing there, other than laying down a massive carbon footprint. Come on, certainly they're not attending because they need to be convinced of the need for climate action. They all subscribe to the climate emergency agenda. The vast majority of them have been saying, hey, there's no need for debate or questions. So other than schmoozing, this actually reminds me, you know, the social side you hear so much about at the Olympics. But other than schmoozing, it doesn't look like there's a compelling reason for literally tens of thousands of those people to be there. I mean, I'm not sure what's so pressing that virtually 95% of those people could have stayed home, used the Internet, streamed or do Zoom meetings in order. And that would have shown some climate leadership. Come on, certainly the sight of 400 private jets bringing the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio and Jeff Bezos doesn't convey climate emergency. Now, I appreciate that I will infuriate many people for saying that. Well, actually saying anything on the climate change that doesn't suit their agenda. Climate change is one of those subjects, though, where advocates work hard to to limit discussion. And it's been that way since the absurd declaration that there's a 97% consensus of scientists regarding climate change. Come on, that is a profoundly anti-science statement to discourage questions, made even more meaningless because they never quite elaborated on what the specifics of that consensus were. And they don't encourage questions to find out. I'll give you one example, though. There's sure no consensus on the role of nuclear power versus renewables in the climate community itself. Now, I have to admit, I am suspicious of anybody or any group who says no questions allowed. Now, obviously, many disagree with that. But I'm with Galileo, who said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forgo their use. Along with Einstein, who said, the important thing is to not stop questioning. But unfortunately, climate change is on that glowing, growing list of subjects you may have noticed, the subjects and issues, that open discussion and questions are discouraged or just simply ignored. Obviously, there's so many aspects out of this issue with regard to climate change. But I'm going to focus on just one. But first, again, let me preface everything I'm about to say with the understanding that there are a great many people who would disagree, who don't want to hear this. I mentioned, you know, on last week's show, very briefly, that the biggest blowback on something I've said in the last three years is to point out that the practical limitations on transitioning to renewable energy electric vehicles, given there's no plan. We've had 25 summits, still no plan. You'd think at some point people who are concerned about climate change would demand to get past those sort of broad statements or past the virtue signaling and demand a step-by-step specific on how to transition and how much it is going to cost. I have no idea how many of the climate protesters or the COP 
uh, 26 delegates, observers and media understand that as Daniel Jurgen, he's an acknowledged leading authority on energy in the global economy. Well, he says electric vehicles require six times more minerals than a conventional car. And a wind turbine uses nine times more minerals than gas-fueled uh, power plants. Well, with the move to electric cars, demand for critical materials like lithium are going to increase 4,300%, cobalt and nickel up about 2,500%, plus a huge increase in copper production that we can't meet right now. The demand will be huge. As for wind towers, China controls 60% of rare earths needed to construct them. Now, I don't know whether COP26 attendees understand these profound constraints to transitioning to electric vehicles and renewable energy, but they're sure not talking about them, and ignoring them delays the timetable. And speaking of timetables, many climate activists demand a complete phase-out of oil and gas without matching the time frame for the build-out of the renewable or nuclear power-based grid. The massive spike in oil, natural gas, and coal prices in the UK, Europe, China, India, they're just giving us a real reminder of what happens when the two time frames, one phasing out fossil fuels, but it doesn't match the time frame for building out the power grid on renewables. And let me just add that I'm not sure if there's anyone happier about the massive reduction in investment increasing oil and gas production in the West than the likes of Vladimir Putin or Algeria, Nigeria who benefit from rising prices because supply can't meet demand, which is the reason for the spike in energy prices. Hey, I wonder if that's going to be mentioned at COP26. Will they talk about the president of the U.S. imploring Saudi Arabia to actually increase oil production? Or the U.K. and China asking coal producers to ramp up production? Will there be a forum focusing on the serious consequences of Germany decommissioning nuclear power plants without any backup power whatsoever, which now has them begging Putin to increase natural gas exports. In short, there's got to be a reality check. And speaking of a reality check, let me finish. One more infuriating question. What about the cost? The cost of transitioning to renewable energy for us as individuals? I mean, we're getting a hint right now with increases to gasoline, diesel, or Coal prices, what it costs to heat your home, rising consumer prices because transportation costs are skyrocketing. I think this is going to be a huge issue going forward for you personally and your finances. I mean, because collectively we're talking tens of trillions of dollars. And should we be doing some sort of cost benefit analysis of different actions? Or do we keep pretending that all actions to reduce climate change produce equal results? As I say, lots of questions not welcomed by most, but essential to make serious progress, but very little chance they're going to get considered in Glasgow. I want you to stay with me. I've got Rob Levy. I've got Greg Weldon. I mean, there's so much good stuff happening in the show. I'm glad you're with me. I've been looking forward to this all week to have a chance to talk to one of the great analysts in North America. This is someone who, by the way, I was introduced to Greg years ago, Greg Weldon, because other analysts were reading Weldon online. That's how I got to know him. Someone said, hey, you should check this guy out. I did. That's well over a decade ago, and I can see why. And that's why I'm so happy to get a chance to chat with him when there's so much going on right now. Greg, appreciate you finding time for us. And I want to just start with one of those open-ended questions. What do you think the biggest issues going on right now in finance are for individuals? Wow. I mean, we only have a limited amount of time because we could talk about that for six hours. Um, I think that really the big picture macro is what's the concern for investors. The fact that the Fed, you take Jerome Powell and you go back to August of 2018, Jackson Hole, when he laid out the game plan for exactly where we've come, where this is a thing where, you know, we have kind of raised rates in the past to fight an inflation that never materialized or that was transitory. And in the past it was because most of the inflations, including 2007, uh, 2008, was a function of spike, spikes in oil prices. And you had the base effect that rolled off. And this is wholly different, uh, Mike, as you know. I mean, you saw some of the some of the stuff I've produced lately. When you go through the CPI data and you look at the breadth of this inflation and you look at how many items from everyday you know consumption are up in price and up in price significantly 
it's kind of mind-blowing. And when you break it down and you look at the lower half of the income scale, those earning below $64,000 a year in the U.S., they are very concerned about inflation because you have to pay more for everything, and income may be going up for those that are working, but it's not keeping place, pace with inflation right now. And it's just kind of a select few that are making more money to the degree that they can afford to pay higher prices for everything. And yet you get to this point now where the Fed really refuses to even acknowledge inflation, let alone you know, suggest that they will remain vigilant at some point in time. This week's Fed meeting, we're just after the Wednesday meeting here, blew me away because Joel Powell, they're, they're so afraid of bringing this house of cards down, and maybe for good reason because it is so fragile, that they refuse to even fully commit to taper. It will taper for two months and see how it goes. And it's kind of like, holy mackerel. And Fed uh, Powell is talking about, you know, we're on track to get inflation above 2%. Those were his exact words. On track? We're there already, man. I mean, what are we waiting for? And the degree to which this is fostered, finally, what I think we can all agree, at least any of us that have experience in the markets for more than, you know, five years, a true irrational exuberance in asset prices. The Fed willingness to let this thing run, uh, while you know I understand it, at the same time, the thought that inflation is transitory is completely wrong. And here's why. I'll give you one quick point on why this isn't transitory. The year-over-year -year rate goes up. Maybe the year-over-year -year rate comes back down. Maybe it even comes back down to zero. Prices are not going to fall back to where they were before the pandemic. This inflation, Mike, is permanent, and the Fed is not at all acknowledging that. I'm so glad you started with that, though. It's, it's funny because, you know, for, for years, I know I'd have to look at the charts very quickly, but, you know, over 10 years, inflation has not been a problem. You know, since the, you know, the financial crisis, that's not been a concern. So I find people aren't as sensitive as I'd like them to be, I mean, for their own sake, to what this means to them. You know, you start getting this five, 5%. Five we had the Bank of Canada doing exactly, you know, saying that, oh, maybe the inflation thing's a little worse. Then I see things like I did on Friday where, you know, fertilizer is a big problem because of the energy jump. So we're going to have even further food shortages. I know things like meat jump 10% in six months, in six months. You know, across the board, as you say, I'm, I'm just, as I say, I'm glad you started with that because people have to get sensitive that they're under the gun here. And your other point or, uh, that I just, I'm really glad you made is that keep in mind, when they start giving us the 2022 inflation numbers, they're comparing to 2021. And so, you know, if you just get, uh, Bank of Canada says we could still be at about three, three, three quarter percent. Well, that's on top of the gains and the increases this year. So I just think this is just a huge story. And I'm also glad that you pointed out, who does this hurt? You've got people on fixed income. You've got people whose wages absolutely are not going to keep track with a 5% jump in inflation, whether we're talking the U.S. or Canada, similar numbers. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a huge question. But I come back with, what can they do about it? Because with a world awash with debt, I don't know how they could, you know, normally they'd raise interest rates, as you know, uh, to sort of tame and calm our demand. Well, I don't see how they can raise interest rates with causing maybe more problems. I agree, Mike. And I'll backtrack to, uh, to kind of clarify and to support one of the things you just said. If you look at the New York household uh, survey that is done now every month, used to be quarterly, it's a treasure trove of information. And one of the things we find in there is that when the breakdown in inflation expectations done by age, people that are 59 and older see inflation higher, more sustained, they understand it. When you get anyone that's basically less than 50 years old, they've never seen how destructive inflation can be, how destructive it was in the 70s. And you talk about the labor market, Inflation crushed the labor market in the 1970s. So this whole narrative around, you know, the labor market, and of course this is about inclusion, about getting the participation rate back up, it seems they can't really do anything about that either. So can they address inflation now with monetary policy? Maybe not this kind of inflation right now. Maybe the answer to that is no. But I will add, it's credibility that's at stake right now. It's the sense that the Fed is supposed to be our last line of defense against inflation, defending you know the purchasing power of people's money, and they're not 
doing that right now. And I think that is central to what an individual investors should be looking at right now. And when you take that to the next step, when you take that to the step where this week, for example, the UK, the BOE did not raise rates as expected. What did the guilt market do? It rallies through the roof. To me, I, you know, I'm actually sitting here on, on Friday as we're doing this, and it's like, I almost don't understand why bonds are acting the way they are, because if the Fed and the UK and the BOE, they're going to let inflation run, isn't that bad for bonds? So I, I feel that the markets are really disconnected with reality, and I think that's really evident in the stock market. Having said that, the Fed still adding $120 billion a month. The, the uh, ECB still adding $170 billion euro a month. I mean, this is the epitome of you can't fight the Fed. And until the Fed really kind of pulls back, stock market probably keeps running. And if you want to look at what could be an early warning sign that the markets are kind of getting, you know, a little saturated with this whole thought process and this whole kind of reflation dynamic, uh, you take a look at the commodities markets. Uh, the bond markets are rallying like crazy because the Fed is, is going to, you know, not commit to a full taper and the uh, BOE is not going to raise rates. And the dynamic there is, you know, the commodities markets got hit a little bit. So that might be an early warning sign that some of the asset price inflation that we're seeing could be at risk down the road. But frankly, like I, like I said, I mean, you're adding so much liquidity still that you're trying to fight the Fed. And right now, that's a losing, that's a losing proposition. All you got to do is look at the consumer discretionary uh, index in the U.S. It's through the roof, and that makes no sense. It's pricing in a consumer that's twice as strong as he's ever been. That's not what's going on. The market is pricing in a doubling in the Fed's balance sheet. It's that simple. It's liquidity. Let me ask, uh, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but uh, speaking of commodities, you're one of the foremost experts on gold. You wrote, you know, the gold uh, trading boot camp. You've done, you know, special reports. Gold has not really responded to an inflationary scenario. I mean, it stayed in a pretty tight trading range over the last uh, several months. What do you make of that? Uh, it's difficult to tell, and I get asked that a lot, and there's no simple answer, uh, although there is a kind of a simple reason, if that makes sense. The dollar is not depreciating, Mike, so that's your answer. That's why gold is not performing. But I would also add, I don't see why the dollar is holding up here unless it is one of those things that's the best of all the, of all the evils. It's the lesser of all the evils out there. Because what you have is, all right, let's take, for example, uh, let, let's, who are we going to look at? Because you had a couple of countries that have raised interest rates recently, all right? And despite that, the real policy rate is still falling. The real policy rate is as deeply negative as it's ever been. This is why stocks are still to the moon and why gold isn't responding to that, Mike, is kind of a mystery. Why the dollar is not responding to that is kind of a mystery. Well, one of the things I always talk about is to, for people to understand this concept of real interest rates, which is what's the interest rate you're borrowing at? And let's, let's just put a number and say we're borrowing at 2% or we're investing or sorry, we're buying a bond and it pays me 2%, but inflation's running at 5 so I'm losing 3% in purchasing power. And that's what Greg's talking about. It's a negative uh, real interest rate, uh, you know, because the real deal is, hey, what does your money buy? So if I invested in something and got 3% and the inflation's running at 10%, I'm losing. And uh, this, is, this comes back to the tapering issue or, or the amount of support that the central governments have given. I mean, that's why I think they don't talk about inflation, because it's just another way of saying, if you buy our bonds, you're stupid. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, I, I mean, bonds to me are worthless. I'm like, I mean, I don't even understand. You call it fixed income. There's no income to be had there. Uh, it doesn't protect the value, uh, the purchasing power of your money at all. Uh, so I still think gold does a better job of that. I still think people should have gold. And I think gold will respond. I think gold will reach new highs. And in the UK, it's interesting to note when the expectation was the BOE would raise rates, sterling rallied and was breaking out against the euro currency. And yet gold in, in sterling was also breaking out. And to me, that was really interesting and a, and a potential tell that we could be on the verge of something big in the precious metals. Yeah. And let me just go one more and ask about silver, um, you know, because it would seem it has even a double uh, positive in that it's, of course, in demand industrially. And we see the renewable energy drive and those kinds of things. It's going to involve silver. And then, of course, it's got sort of a, a semi-traditional thing of a hedge against inflation. So what's your take on silver? Well, really, I go back to the gold-silver ratio, which is on the verge of a, of a breakout to the upside, which would favor gold over silver, number one. It just came through that, you know, you had the big rally when gold reached its, its highs above 2,000. 
and you have a beautiful technical picture in the gold-silver ratio with an ABC Fibonacci-based correction that met every uh, downside target to the T and is now reversed to the upside and is perched poison position to break out. So, yeah, silver, if you get above $25, you absolutely want to be along silver. There's no doubt about it. But frankly, the way it kind of plays out technically, gold still looks to outperform. And let's let's go back. In this environment that we're looking at, where I think there's uh, obviously some rate uncertainty, uh, as you alluded to, inflation looks certain. And I mean, I'm watching also wages going up. I'm watching rents go up. All of these things, you know, the labor shortage, you know, create that long-term bed of inflation. Um, let's come back to stocks, as you said, and had predicted at the World Outlook Conference, this big move in stocks were at 36,000, basically, you know, in the Dow Jones, 21,000, you know, in the Toronto Stock Exchange, we can go other places in the world. Uh, what about stocks in terms of an inflationary environment? Uh, yeah, Mike, I mean, stocks are acting exactly as you might expect them to during an inflationary episode. The problem is you might also expect the dollar to be depreciating during that uh, episode. But the fact of the matter is, you know, real policy rates are plummeting everywhere and countries where the inflation rate's even higher, all right, the real interest rates are even lower. It's still giving the U.S. some kind of an interest rate advantage, which is supporting the dollar. So I think when the dollar cracks, it might be interesting. And I could twist this around 180 degrees and just kind of to play devil's advocate and to create an interesting conversation. What if I were to say that when inflation, the year-over-year -year rate starts to come down, that's when you start to face a problem because that's when the real policy rates start to rise. And that could be the issue that brings the stock market to a halt in terms of this really what is – it really defines irrational exuberance. You know, that was a phrase used by Greenspan, you know, 25, 30 years ago. It, you know, he was 25 or 30 years too early because what we have right now is irrational exuberance. And when inflation falls, that may be the end of it. And as you said, with the Fed pumping in, I mean, really, it's just so much money. It's hard to comprehend when you're talking trillions of dollars with more still being voted on in the U.S. So that also sets the lead for trillions of dollars more coming into the system. I mean, it's just such an unprecedented time. And I know that's a sort of a cliche. It's being said so often. But when I can point to, say, a dozen things that we just haven't seen before, uh, all coming at the same time. I mean, that's why investors are sitting there going, I guess I should just stay in stocks at this point. And as you say, watch for when it gets a little tighter from the Federal Reserve, but it's not showing much sign of that. Or watch for inflation to drop. And that means real interest rates are rising, even if, you know, so in, in other words, the inflation isn't taking away from your return. That's probably uh, the end product there. Um, is there anything else you want to say to investors? Because uh, I want to switch subjects in a second. Well, it's related, obviously, but into China and, the, and what's going on there. But anything else for investors that I've overlooked? There's, there's a pretty easy way to very simply uh, make tangible the decline in the purchasing power of the dollar. And that's the real estate market, Mike. And you know, I live in, in Palm Beach, Florida. It's insane here. And I understand Florida's different because it's a low tax state and you got people migrating here. But I am telling you, I keep my eye on this market uh, like, like a hawk. And what you, what you get now for, if you're a renter, for example, in, in, in Florida, for $5,000, you maybe would get a really nice large house that might be 5,000, 4,500 square feet. For $5,000 now, you get a, uh, like a 1,600 square foot one bedroom apartment. And I am not exaggerating. So when you talk about the purchasing power of the, of the dollar and all the money they pumped in, it's very tangible to me in the real estate market. Well, we've experienced, I'll talk to Ozzy Jurek about this uh, later on, experience exactly the same thing really across Canada, but Vancouver leading the way as usual. But I mean, what's so different about the, our real estate market in the country is it's it's gone beyond the Toronto, Hamilton, you know, Vancouver kind of axis. And it's everywhere. The same kind of thing. It's the purchasing power of the dollar has gone down. Uh, you know, inflate, asset inflation has gone up as it has in so many other areas. So we're experiencing, you know, precisely the same thing. And I guess the message comes back to Greg, as long as the central banks keep just pumping the money in there and supporting these record low rates, um, you know, things don't really have a big reason to change. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, again, I think until you see real policy rates start to rise, you have a problem. And one other thing I might point out, too, is if you look at where we've come from over the last six months or so, really go back to the beginning of the year. 
the Fed funds forwards have kind of been the only market. I, I did a piece yesterday. I called it the Alfred E. Newman Federal Reserve. And if you remember Mad Magazine and Alfred E. Newman, what? Me worry? And that's the Fed right now. What? Me worry about inflation? But I think that what the Fed is really worried about is pulling back bond buying as the world's largest buyer of bonds at a time when the supply is about to explode could lead to a disaster. People are talking about how this taper came with no tantrum. I think that is a way premature call, Mike. So we'll see how the Fed plays this out. And inflation proves not to be transitory. They're going to face some real key decisions in the future that are going to have a big impact. And I think the stock market is not going to weather that storm as well as it is right now. I, I just think you've made such a, uh, you know, a couple of just fabulous points that I just want people to understand. We started with inflation. The overriding issue is though a world awash in debt, including our governments. So that is what's uh, driving Federal Reserve policy, central bank policy. They're worried about that rise. And Greg, you alluded to it earlier. You know, when they said in uh, the fall of 2018, I think off the top of my head it was about October, and they said, you know what, we're going to let rates go up. Well, the stock market dropped 20% in the next two months. And I think that's what they're so afraid of. And, uh, and you're right. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But I want to just take one last thing. I've taken too much of your time already, but one last thing. And so those are the two biggest issues out there, inflation, and we've got uh, record interest rates or record sorry, uh, debt interest rates. Here's the other one geopolitically, and that's China. And I just wanted to get your take because you spend a lot of time, you, you analyze around the world to see what the impacts will be. So I just wanted the Greg Weldon take on China. Well, China, I think, is the big wild card in all of this. Um, they, they yesterday enacted a new law that in Hong Kong or China, if you uh, talk about Taiwanese independence, you will be sent to prison for life. All right. So that's number one. We know there were already in, you know, incursions into Vietnamese airspace, Taiwanese airspace, Malaysian airspace. The Philippines were actually on the verge of declaring war on China at one point. Uh, so that's, you know, this whole regional kind of manifest destiny that they're putting out there is number one. Number two, I've been talking about this for a while and I, I'm hesitant to even talk about it because it's, it's like I don't want to put the idea out there almost. But I think what's coming is kind of like a financial nuclear attack. We've been talking for years about China dumping bonds in the U.S. The mutually assured destruction dynamic means they'll never do it, right? But what if there's something else going on, which there is? Number one, Shanghai uh, crude oil futures uh, that are priced uh, pricing the Dubai OPEC crude oil started trading in 2019. Russia has agreed to benchmark their oils cr crude off of the Shanghai price. So when Biden first came in, I mean, he also dissed the, the younger faction of the House of Saud, and these are the people that run Saudi Aramco. And what did Saudi Aramco then promptly do? They cut exports to the U.S. and redirected those exports to, to China. So we can create, start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. All right, China, Russia, OPEC. If this is the new axis of power, what happens, Mike? China, the largest trader of commodities, consumer goods, everything in the world. Right? You're running, you know, basically a three trillion a year in exports, three trillion a year in imports right now. So if they were to come out and basically say that we're only going to pay with Chinese renminbi for our imports of raw materials and natural resources, mainly crude oil, and crude oil is now going to be benchmarked for the world based on the Shanghai Futures Exchange, which trades OPEC crude. I mean, the devastation of removing the dollar as the petrocurrency would be widespread. The dynamic that would follow in terms of the dollar losing its status as the world's, world's reserve currency would be monumental. And it would lead to a depression in the U.S. And if China's goal here is to, you know, take out the U.S., I hate to say it. And again, I hesitate to even talk about it, putting the idea out there. But this would be a very fast and furious way to do it. Yeah, but that's exactly why I wanted to talk about it. I mean, people have to be sensitized to what's going on geopolitically, what's going on. I mean, we had a federal election, Greg, where they didn't even talk about China. It's like a shot. I can give you 50 reasons why they should have from the Canadian perspective, but they never even talked about it. And people have to be aware of uh, the geopolitical goals of China, which I think are very well clearly what laid out their attitude toward Taiwan independence all of these things, and as you said, when it comes back down to their economic dominance and what could happen with commodities, with the dollar, uh, 
exchange rates, that kind of stuff. It's just so key for people to understand, which is why people go to WeldonOnline.com, WeldonOnline.com. Greg, I appreciate very much you finding time for us. And you can say we got a lot more to talk about. We do have a lot more to talk about. We didn't even talk about, you know, uh, Xi uh, Daoping in terms of, you know, what he's all about. So, uh, yeah, China's a real risk, Mike. And uh, I, I really cringe when I think of what could happen with that situation. Well, we're going to have a special little bit on that in the World Outlook Conference with the great Greg Weldon. That's what we're looking forward to. Greg, appreciate your time. My pleasure, Mike. As always, you do a great job. Keep it up. And by the way, of course, I just as I said earlier too, the World Outlook Conference, Greg Weldon will be with us and we'll actually divide what he's saying because I think China on its own is a separate subject, as you could just tell from what I've been saying, as well as everything else that's happening. And, you know, I go back to what we talked about last year at the conference and you've got to understand that all I want to do is help people make money and save some money. And I look at, you know, our theme of the huge commodity boom, oil over $100, agriculturals being way more expensive and we're getting more and more evidence in that regard, but also the threat that's coming geopolitically that we should be aware of all of that stuff we're covering at this year's conference. And, you know, there's just every year, it's the same thing. Of course, there's no shortage of things to talk about, but one of the changes is think about this as the debt levels get higher, the fragility of the system becomes more pronounced. That's why it's more important than ever to stay on top of this stuff. Uh, for your own personal financial sake. And that's why we do it. And you can get all the information you want by simply going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Just click on the events page right there, mikesmoneytalks.ca. I invite you, we're going to do it online this year again, because we're just not certain about the COVID environment. You know, restrictions get placed on, they get taken off, get put on again. Obviously, we all hope they'll get uh, taken off permanently, but we're certainly not there yet. So we're going to do it online as we did last year, but several advantages to that, the number of speakers we can get involved, the way you can review it yourself, you can see all the workshops. So again, mikesmoneytalks.ca. I'll talk more about that as you can well guess. Time now for the quote of the week. For that, we're going to go to COP26 in Glasgow and Prince Charles opening remarks, stating in quotes that we have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing. We need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector with trillions at its disposal. This is very much the same theme as the Great Reset's goal of reimagining capitalism or our prime minister's reinventing capitalism. But it's important to go a little further and think about what he's actually saying because it could be our future. We have to put ourselves on a military footing, a military-style campaign. Well, I invite you to consider what that entails. It's top-down centralized authority. The military is not a democracy. Foot soldiers, that's us, the public, don't get any say. It's not a democracy. As for accessing the private sector's trillions, well, that means more taxes, more levies. Now, you can decide whether you support that or not, but make no mistake. Whether we're talking the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, Building Back Better, or Glasgow's military-style campaign, they're talking more government control, more restrictions, and higher levels of taxation. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I'm looking at an environment right now where you're getting a higher consensus, not that that's anything, but it seems more and more analysts are saying, hey, that inflation thing is here uh, right now, that we're, it's going to be more persistent. Even the Federal Reserve said that this week, and we certainly have the Bank of Canada alluding to that. Well, what do you do with your money? How do you protect yourself? Well, coming up, I'll talk with Ozzy Jurek about that in the real estate market. Clearly, some people are doing that. We've looked at Bitcoin. We'll do more of that, by the way, at the World Outlook Conference. Uh, but I wanted to talk to the world of gold and silver, maybe platinum. So I got to bring in Rob Levy, Border Gold. He's the guy who runs it. Rob, let me just start with on the ground kind of stuff. Have you seen a pickup in demand for whether we're talking gold, whether we're talking silver, whether we're talking platinum? I'm saying sort of people marching with their feet. Absolutely, Mike, especially at the retail level. But there, there's no doubt there's strong demand right now for precious metals. 
and as you sort of hinted in, in your lead in there with the inflation problem in the economy today and people not comfortable with sitting in cash in the bank. So what's their way around that? They look for alternatives and, and one of them is a real asset like precious metals. So it's it's been this way since the pandemic began when it started with a bit of an uncertainty bid in the markets, but it's continued because we've seen sort of higher and more persistent inflation out of the pandemic and retail investors with cash in the bank say, I need to put a little bit of that into physical precious metals because that's one of the, the known, knowns in, in a way you perceive you can sort of protect your cash and your dollar. I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I, I want to make sure everyone knows that I'm the one saying this, but I, I'm approaching these markets as having one of these positions uh, because I'm watching that uh, it doesn't matter what investment we're talking about. It sort of goes along for a while and then all of a sudden it becomes popular. And we have to look at the sort of movement that way, that all of a sudden you get this big spike up. So my big thing is, while we've got gold down at these levels, uh, you know, silver down at these levels, you've got to, you know, if you want to have a position, I say you start accumulating at this, because at least for me, I've always had a problem, Rob, once the thing starts running away from me and I go, last week I could have had it a lot less, I don't take action. So I'm just putting that out there. But let's help the, the person who says, you know what? I appreciate I can do this through gold uh, gold uh, mines. I can do it through ETFs, but I want some of the metal itself. And that's what you do at Border Gold. If I'm a small, uh, I'm talking myself a very small investor, what's the least amount of money I can get involved with uh, and get the physical gold, uh, the physical silver kind of thing? $36. If you visited us in South Surrey, you could come buy a silver maple leaf and you pay a premium over the paper price of the precious metal, which you see, you know, traded in U.S. dollars on TV or online in the paper or whatever. But you pay a little bit for physical, but as little as $36, someone can come in and they buy physical metal. And, you know, it's entertaining because you see some parents who have always sort of valued precious metals, bringing their kids to do that and start a savings plan to buy a little bit of precious metals. Uh, but really, at the retail level, you see all sort of scale and size of investment, people starting out to to people that are putting significant dollars and a little bit of an allocation into into metals. And, and what about platinum? Are you seeing any pickup for platinum? Because obviously, again, as is with silver, there's a more industrial use for it also. Exactly right, Mike. But it's an interesting scenario right now in the metals markets, too, because what we've seen is what basically every other business is starting and continuing to see through this COVID pandemic, too, is these supply chain disruptions. So, yes, there's very, very strong demand right now. But what we also have is these world mints, the U.S. mint, the Royal Canadian mint that are producing record volumes and have been and they keep their clients on allocation because they can't increase production to what demand could be too so you know whether it's platinum whether it's silver whether it's gold you know everything's running either two weeks out to, to six weeks out to take delivery and you know with platinum as you sort of questioned about when we have a small inventory of platinum which is a little harder to get because it's not as big and well supplied as gold and silver it can go very quickly uh, and again, let me just outline that for people. So let's say they come in, they want to buy a gold maple leaf as an example, or they could buy a one ounce wafer as another example. They'll come in and they lock in the price with you, even if you can't deliver for a week or two weeks or three weeks. Is that how it goes? Yeah, exactly right. And it all sort of depends on the size of the order and the type of product that they're offering, because you almost think about going to a shoe store. I mean, it might be Nikes, it might be Adidas, and they might have different types of trainers, whether they're basketball shoes or running shoes. You know, it's the same thing with precious metals. You might buy coins, bars, one ounce, 10 ounce, sizes vary. So the products that they're looking for can have different delivery timelines, uh, but we can always make a price in a market. And then we just guarantee delivery when the product comes in. They, we've been in this business a long time, so we're very aggressive buyers. And I've been lining up deliveries for silver well into December. So in order to have inventory to enjoy and sort of meet or match our client demand, but that's almost like predicting the price of a cryptocurrency where demand's going to be a month from now. So we only do our best guess. And, you know, we probably and likely are going to oversell it the way this market's moving right now. But it's a fascinating thing is a lot of people, as you say, because they're experienced, we haven't had the supply shortage uh, the way they have in, in many other goods and services. So that it's just something to get bring to people's attention is that you're going to go in, you're going to uh, you know, pay for it, you lock in your price when you do that. 
and then expect it some other time, you know, a few weeks in the future or what, what have you. It's just important for people to understand, but don't be distracted or, or deterred by that rather, you know, go in and, and if this is one of the things you want to do and you want to position in precious metals, this is how you lock it in. And as you say, you're, you're dealing at border gold with uh, small, medium and huge. So whatever your demand is, or as an individual or whatever you want, just make sure, uh, you know, don't be deterred by that. Just go in and, and make your purchase or, can they do it online also with Border Gold? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Online, over the phone, in store. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just got to tell you one story, too, because we deal with a, a major U.S. Uh, refiner, a private mint that produces in the realm of 600,000 silver rounds a week. So just a miscellaneous ounce of silver. And the story I got from them the other day, they're running six to eight weeks behind right now on orders. Reason's very simple. They need 1,000-ounce bars in order to make the product. They pull them off the Comex, and they're sitting in New York for them. But it's four to five weeks to get the truck to bring those silver bars to, to, to the middle of the U.S., central U.S., where they're produced. So, you know, the same kind of logistic delays. And, and we do have a bit of an inventory. So we got silver that we're ready to sell right now. But, you know, bigger orders, something more particular. Those are the kind of timelines some investors are facing right now. And just, what, uh, you know, a couple more questions here before I let you go. And that's, um, you know, the other thing when I look at the, the market for that and you uh, is storage is, you know, I, I could tell an old story about where I bought a whole bunch of silver going back about 30 years ago, and I forgot how much that would be in physical. So I got these, the Loomis truck actually came to my office with, you know, a cartload, and I was infamous at my own household for putting it in the trunk of my car, and then, then figuring out what do I do. So uh, when people buy this, you know, and I'm talking about significant amounts, but not crazy. Again, individuals may want to buy 100 ounces every week or 100 ounces every month and do dollar cost averaging of silver, of course, you know, gold. Uh, what do you recommend for storage when they actually get the physical thing themselves? People will a lot of times take delivery, but we also have a couple storage solutions. One is with Brinks right here in Vancouver, and we actually put metal vaulted on their floor. And if a customer buys a specific bar with a specific serial number on it, that bar will stay in their name until they either take delivery or sell it back to us. So that bar actually sits in their name in Brinks in Vancouver. And, and, and as you sort of hinted too, even large bars right now, we've seen those sort of become popular because of the premiums people are paying to get physical right now. The alternative and the cheapest way to buy it is you get the thousands. So we can get thousand ounce bars directly from the Royal Canadian Mint and we put them on the floor in, in Toronto and in Ontario where there's a bigger market, they're more liquid out there and people can store them out there. So you know, round numbers, you know, people have $50,000 in metal. They might pay $250 a year for insured storage with Brinks. Uh, but it's a solution, especially, you know, so you don't have to have it in the trunk of your vehicle. Yeah, well, that, that's not, you're not recommending that, neither am I. <laughs> I just happen to do that. Uh, but the other thing is this, and I'll just say this, is that well, I gave away one ounce silver coins as stocking stuffers. You know, I got lots of nephews and nieces and grandchildren. So I'm just recommending that. It, I can tell you, people love that kind of stuff. I put it, got a big smile on my say, face saying that because they do. Isn't that cool? And obviously, it's got good value also. Uh, you know, so I'm just throwing that out there. But one last thing, bordergold.com, people can get all the information there. Plus, you give a regular update on what's happening in the gold, silver, or precious metals markets. Yeah, ex exactly right. I mean, we'll talk about what's going on in the market. So we have a blog on that site. We have all our products on that site. So we're regularly selling and talking to customers and, you know, looking for more product, especially in these kind of markets, because it, it is one where investor demand is a little higher than normal. You know, the one, you know, if I do talk about something, it's it's the Canadian Mints products because everybody's always loving maple leaves. But, you know, there's always sort of that niche demand for something else. So we have all our products on that site and all our info when we talk about, you know, what's going on, the happenings of the market, especially a week like this when you had gold sort of go down to 1750 and back up near 1800 again, a lot of volatility. And one last thing, I want to thank you and Border Gold and your employees for your support of Special Olympics. I want to make sure people know that you guys have been there for us for years and uh, always step up when we need the help. So let me finish with a big thank you to Border Gold for Special Olympics. I, I appreciate that, Mike, but it's always nice to follow the example and the lead you set. So thank you very much.
I want to grab Aji's Zurich right now and talk about these latest house numbers. I mean, we got the October numbers. And once again, you're looking at sort of a weird combination here. You've got higher prices, lower listings. And of course, the listings are so low, Ozzy, that we've got sales even down because, hey, if there's no product, how do you make a sale? Yeah, it's a real crazy market. You know, Mark Twain said all generalizations are false, including this one. <laughs> so, but in general, we have much higher prices, not just in the city of Vancouver. We talked last week about the UBS bubble index, and we have places like Frankfurt being number one in a bubble, and we have places around the world participating in this crazy market. What I don't think we have around the world is this, this madness of the house price in Vancouver. Just take a look at now versus 2019. The average Vancouver price is now over $2 million. So we are talking the average of all the houses from Coquitlam to Lions Bay, average. So $2 million. But that's up from a million five in 2019. Wow, two years. The West Side clocked in at $3.8 million, up from $3.3 million. Coquitlam clocked in at a million six from a million two. Victoria clocked in a million three, and are you sitting down for this one? Surrey came in at a million seven hundred and twenty-three thousand, and that's up from a million eighty-three thousand in two thousand nineteen. Wow! But you say the big difference is this is a cross Canada thing too. I mean, Edmonton, Calgary, Halifax, obviously bigger strength than Toronto and Hamilton, but uh, it's been this sort of worldwide phenomena, as you say, and countrywide phenomena here. But what I found kind of interesting when you sort of look into the numbers. Uh, usually, and you correct me if I'm wrong, usually when you get this kind of a price increase, a lot of people will throw their home up in the market to sort of capitalize on that price increase. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, and particularly when you look at Surrey, the average single family home buyer made $640,000 in two years just by staying home. And guess what? If they're sold right now, that's tax free money. I mean, hey, that's amazing. Edmonton, by the way, the single family home price was up 2%, Calgary was up 3%, so more moderate. But look at these prices. Edmonton average single family home price, 450. <laughs> average home price in Calgary, 571. Now quadruple that and you come up with the average in Vancouver. It's mind boggling. Yeah, the point you're making is really excellent. Why are people not putting up their houses for sale? I mean, with these kind of money, you'd say, Georgia, let's sell and move to Mexico for a month or do something else with the money. But I think we are worried as individuals. We'll sit in our house. We've been there for two years. We don't really want to put it up for sale. What if it goes up another half a million in the next two years? And what am I going to buy? There's nothing for sale. So we have this unusual event is that we're actually sitting at home and waiting. And number two, the new buyer switches into condoms. Uh, let's let's stay on the first just for a second there, because I think it's such an interesting point that People are, you know, and I, I just sense, and obviously we don't measure this exactly, but it's, it's sort of a cumulative anecdotal evidence that people sit there and they go, well, where would I live if I don't, if I sell my place now? Because again, the supply problem hits at both sides. You know, if I want to sell, yeah, I can make that sale, but where am I going to go? So yeah. that's sort of restricting. And, and that's, by the way, the reason that the sales are down. If there's no product, as I said, there's no sales. But it's highly unusual, as you pointed out, because normally when, when listings rise, sales go down and you usually when sales go up, you know, uh, listings go down. We have the opposite this time. But look at the, the incredible numbers. Victoria sales actually were down 30%. Mm. Vancouver overall almost 20%. Surrey down 26 Coquitlam single family home sales were down 43%. Now looking at Edmonton and Calgary, they're much even, you know, they're about the same between one or 3% as they were last year. So these wild swings are not there. But if you look at condos, Calgary condo sales are up 53%. Now, the average is only 280000 but still, uh, it, the prices, the, the volume has shifted into the condo sales because even yeah. the sales are higher. Sorry, you had said that earlier uh, or, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, even actually longer than that. You said, look for this sort of shift as buyer fatigue at the higher prices we've got is going to push people back down into the condo market. And as you say, Edmonton, Calgary, seeing that big spike, but you're seeing the spike also if you go to Vancouver and Surrey. Yeah, no question. And so so we are, we are in a very strange market, particularly we're looking at October. Normally, we're starting to slow down. But overall, of course, sales are down. By the time you average it all, it's just that it's not in all, all different uh, price ranges. It's a crazy world. We, we, have, uh, we, are, we, are, we are in the process of launching or helping to launch a new high-rise building. 
And when you look this year, we have thousands of units have sold in the pre-sale market. So a lot of buyers now feel, you know what, I'm going to put my money down. It doesn't close for three years or four years. And I, I trust the market to be higher in a, in a long time. And that's the classic of inflation, by the way, if everyone, for everyone, is that when people start perceiving, I always make that distinction. They can say that my inflation rate is 4.3% or 47 whatever it is. But that's not the issue. The issue is what our perception of inflation will be. And you've just outlined a beautiful one. When we look back historically, whether it's the 1980 period or whatever, all of a sudden people started to think, I've got to get involved now because prices are going to be up three, four, five years out. And that's exactly, I think, what you're seeing in that pre-sale market. The new term is FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, you know. <laughs> and it's funny, you see that in the, in the crypto market, you see it in, in, in mad stocks, and there seems to be that FOMO. And to me, that's very, worrisome because it, it may very well pre-tell a top in the market. Well, and the key, of course, will be, well, let's see what those interest rates do. A lot of talk about that on this show over the last couple of months. We're seeing it in the marketplace now. We'll keep an eye on that with Ozzy Jurek. And you can go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Get the latest from Ozzy, and he'll be with us again next week. Thank you, Mike. And remember, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Then quit. There's no point in being a damn fool about it. <laughs> there you go, Ozzy Jurek. Let's go live to the trading desk. I've got Victor Adair on the line with me right now. Vic, I, you know, one of those uh, things I always think is how active it is and how busy it is. And that's why I'm looking forward to the World Outlook Conference this year. Boy, is it ever a setup. I mean, with that much debt, I've talked about this earlier, you know, the system's more fragile. We seem to be more volatile. There seems to be massive price index uh, movements. And I'll just come to a couple that you talked about going back in September. You said, look at what's going on in the, you know, with China and some of the stocks that are involved in China. And yet now it's dissipated. And now we've gone a different direction. I mean, there's just so many variables hitting this market. Well, China was a real problem for the North American markets in September. And we had our biggest drawdown in a year, fell off uh, 6%. Uh, I would point out that we've rallied back 8% uh, with the major indices, the like the Dow is up 2,700 points here in a month. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I just remember when the Dow was at a thousand. So when it rallies 2,700 points in a month that, you know, I think that's a big move. The fact is that we, we're getting choppy action across a number of the markets that I follow, whether it's currencies or commodities. Uh, the stock market seems to be in a, in a, in a class of its own where that's just it, this past month anyway, just been going up maybe a rotation from sector to sector, but it's been very strong. And it's like, you know, the problems in China just aren't worrying the market at all right now. However, we are seeing some interest from the gold market. Uh, we've, we're up about $60 on the week. Um, the gold market has been choppy as well, but, you know, maybe the gold market will be a signal that uh, things aren't quite as rosy as the stock market wants to believe. I, I still come back to it, and this is, and people, don't, I'm not putting words in Victor's mouth, so please know it's me saying it. But I still think if people are, are worried about that inflation thing, and I talked to Greg a bit about this, but I sort of say you've got to get determined, and Rob Levy earlier, what your position is by it, because when things start moving, it just seems they start moving so quickly. You know, and, and you mentioned oil, that's a great example, but there's so many. All of a sudden, the public's attention starts focusing on one asset class or a couple of assets classes uh, or one factor. It's And that's the kind of market we seem to be in right now. And it's a case of anticipating or at least, uh, as you say, watch the price action and jump in when you think the market's really focusing in one area. I'm very keen to to pay attention to the price action because ultimately that's how I get paid. If I can buy low and sell high, you know, I make money. I may have bought for the wrong reason if I'm trying to figure out why something's going on. But there is certainly, as you say, Mike, there's so much impacting the markets right here, right now. My default position is instead of trying to believe who's who and who's right, just look at what the market is doing. And we've had this runaway market to the upside with stocks. I have to say, I'm suspicious here. The market sentiment is uber bullish. It's just amazing. There's FOMO. There's, you know, buybacks are hitting the market. That, and everybody seems to be uh, fascinated with the seasonality, which shows you that the stock market virtually always goes up this time of the year. 
I'm just like that the old boy from uh, Missouri. You know, when somebody says this always happens, I go, oh yeah. Well, we'll see about that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think what the the message is though, for me at least, to investors is it doesn't matter what you think of the market. Like as you say, we're in a bullish trend here. That doesn't give you, uh, you know, you shouldn't stop looking at the risk you're taking. If the market's moved in a direction and now you're taking more equity risk than maybe is appropriate or in a particular stock that's appropriate, you always come back to risk management as you do as a professional trader. Well, I think Tesla kind of sets the tone here. And, uh, you know, there was a famous company called Sun Microsystems that was one of the hot, hot stocks during the dot-com rally in the late 1990s. And after the market had peaked and gone down a couple of years, the chief executive officer of the firm was saying, what were you thinking when you were paying 10 times revenue for my stock in the spring of 2002? He said, you know, that meant I had to do this and that and the other thing. And it like was impossible to justify on any metrics paying 10 times revenue for a stock. Well, Tesla right now is trading at about 30 times revenue. So, you know, it, is it valuation that's driving the market? Obviously not. It, the market's being driven by emotion, by uh, uh, momentum, by FOMO. And, you know, at some point, there is a risk here where, you know, we may just hit an air pocket. So that's, I don't mean to say to folks, listen, I think the market's going to zero. I just think there is a lot of risk in a market that is not trading on valuation and is trading on emotion. And that's why I say, I come back and say, that's why you have to manage your risk. And by the way, that's why you have to listen to money talks all the time. <laughs> this will help you do that. But, you know, Vic, uh, we've got the World Outlook Conference coming up in February. I, I just think the table is being set here that we're, and I said this right off the top with my editorial or my comment. I hate the cliche unprecedented, but it's hard to get away from it. Uh, the kind of movement we're seeing, the level of volatility, the amount of money. I mean, uh, the amount of money the Federal Reserve has pumped into the system, you know, money supplies up 35 percent in two years. All of that has implications, and that's why people have to be careful. But I'll come back to one last thing that you always said, Vic, is that, as I say, as a professional, you manage risk and you make sure that your time frame matches your analysis. That's absolutely key. And it's and it's difficult to do, honestly, because you get into a trade and maybe it moves your way. And suddenly the idea of taking some profits seems like a good idea. But, you know, if you're if you got into it for a longer term stay, then try to stay with it in terms of that wall of money that's coming from the central banks. I'm seeing there's a wall of money that's gone into the stock market. The capital flows into the stock market this year have been greater. I'm going to have to ballpark it here, but easily greater than the last 10 years combined. I mean, th this is an unusual time, uh, obviously, with the COVID and government and central bank reactions to it. Of course, it's unusual. But the way it's showing up in the stock market is unusual. There has been a tsunami of money come in. And that's one of the reasons we are where we are. And that's great if you're long. And the other the thing is, as you're pointing out, that there are risks that go with those kind of rewards. Well, we'll keep an eye on them and I invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, get his latest market updates. You see the charts with Victor. Vic, thanks for taking the time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. And I've got a lot of great charts up this week. Time now for the Goofy Award. For COP26 in Glasgow, did you know the UK had the second largest number of delegates at 233? The US, well, 133. But what about Canada? Well, Canada's making the biggest carbon footprint with 277 delegates. We're number one. As Blacklock reporter notes, the Canadian entourage includes the Prime Minister's own personal videographer, personal photographer, speechwriter, along with 17 members of his media team made up of press secretaries and communication directors. Now, I thought you should know that because, hey, we're paying for it. Although Environment Canada won't tell us how much. But we do know, thanks to Blacklocks, that they were doing a lot of work in finding that the delegation, which was nearly half the size for the 2019 UN Climate Conference in Madrid, well, expenses for airfare, taxis, chauffeured cars for, at that time, 144, not 277, 144 Canadian delegates was $178,282. That was just some of the $683,278 in expenses 
But that didn't include everything. And by the way, it didn't include the liquor bill. And as I said, that delegation was about half as large. But that was the conference at which then environment minister, he's now resource minister, Jonathan Wilkinson called for deeper emission reductions in greenhouse gases. Of course, no sign that he sees the irony of creating the most emissions when they're in Glasgow, because they never do. I mean, it's amazing that people in government and climate activists don't seem to get the disconnect between calling for deeper emission reductions, especially on the part of us as individuals, while needlessly creating the largest carbon footprint of any country attending COP26. So here's a few questions. Do you actually think anyone in the government sat down and did a cost-benefit analysis for the number of people that Canadian taxpayers are paying for in Glasgow? Well, there's not a chance. Do you think anyone in government sat there and said, let's be concerned about our carbon footprint and asked, do you think we could be just as effective with, say, 233 people like the host country? Could we get along without the prime minister's personal photographer or speechwriter? I mean, obviously, no one's asking those questions. So I'll answer them. Yes, we could get along. Absolutely. Very few people there are actually doing something meaningful. Sorry, but I have to repeat, I find it amazing that no one in government or their climate activist friends can see the hypocrisy of telling the rest of us to cut down on travel, to live a less carbon intensive lifestyle while they do the opposite. I mean, come on, it's a climate schmooze fest that oozes elitism, along with the massive carbon emissions from something like 400 private jets. But you know what? I suspect that's because they live in an intellectual bubble where dissenting opinions are denigrated and dismissed. The lack of leadership, though, is breathtaking. While the virtue signaling and empty promises, well, they're overwhelming. That's all the time we have for the show. But I want to remind you, by the way, that this is the first weekend that you can get a hold of uh, our Outlook Conference tickets happening first week of February. And again, it's an online event, which is very convenient. People loved it last year. Really convenient. They can sit at home, as the old joke goes, in their underwear and watch, but then rewatch too, which I think has some real value. And I look at the track record of the last, well, lots of years. I mean, our uh, small cap portfolio is, again, way up there. Uh, some of the conservative stocks, way up there. Huge percentage gains. Uh, but we also, I mean, I'm still proud. We started, because I mentioned with Victor, we started off the conference with talking about the commodity bull market. Uh, Peter Grand just talked about, you got to get into uranium. Look how that's performed. So our goal is to get it right. And you know what? The record speaks for itself. So. I hope you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and get your ticket for the online World Outlook Conference. Plus, I hope you also join me on uh, uh, Money Talks tweet, uh, Twitter, Money Talks Tweets, that is, and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. That way I get to update you several times a day, I do it actually, about the latest. I give you stats, I give you some quotes, that kind of stuff. So you have the information so you can have uh, your own opinions. My goal is not to change them, but my goal is to let you see in, in case of economics and finance, some of the implications of some of the policies we have. So join me there. In the meantime, hey, I hope you have a wonderful week. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcast, and more.